We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Our guest today is Laura Froyan, who received her PhD in human development and family studies with an emphasis in couple and family therapy from Michigan State University, where her research focused on how marital and family relationships influence parenting and child development. She continued this research as an assistant professor of human development and family studies at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. And while she loved her work as a new professor, she found that she missed working directly with families, which she'd been doing while she was working on her PhD. When she was pregnant with her second daughter, Laura had a life-changing car accident, which luckily both she and her daughter came out of in one piece. But the experience caused her to reevaluate what she wanted to get out of life, and she realized that she really missed working with families. She now offers parent coaching as well as parent support groups and classes. Laura's academic work focused on the intersection of parenting practices and child development outcomes, and she's here to chat with us about that today. Welcome, Laura. Hi, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. So it does seem somewhat logical to me that a family's emotional expressiveness might have connections to a child's emotional development, but I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through what are some of the linkages here, and how is that emotional development linked with later academic performance? Right, sure. So, you know, the family is seen as one of the primary ways that children learn about emotions and their expression and resultant behaviors. And as I'm sure you know and have probably talked a lot about, modeling is considered one of the most powerful ways that children and humans in general learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, emotions are no different. So when we talk about emotional expressiveness, we're talking about the overall style of kind of the emotional state of the family and how they express emotion verbally and non-verbally, and children are very much influenced how their families are doing with the expressive expression of negative and positive emotions. So families can be high or low in both positive and negative expressiveness. Um, So some families are high in both, some are low in both, and some are high in one and high in the other. And families with higher positive expressiveness tend to have children that display more pro-social behavior. And families with higher negative expressiveness tend to have children that display more aggressive behavior. And the working theory on this is that the family emotional context influences children's self-regulation skills, likely through parenting. And then that self-regulation in turn drives their actual behaviors. And self-regulation is also a key skill when it comes to learning. So if we think about the skills that children need to do well in school, being able to sit still and pay attention, being able to minimize distractions uh, or raise their hand. Those types of skills are all self-regulatory skills and um, those self-regulatory skills give children greater access to learning. So they make them better able to learn in those learning environments. Hmm. And so I'm just trying to think about what constitutes a a very positive and a very negative environment. (laughs) I, I assume a lot of yelling and screaming is very negative, but what does a very positive environment look like and what does a neutral kind of environment look like? Yeah, so we don't talk a lot about necessarily neutrals. The research is on 
many topics in child development are done at the extremes, right? Mm -hmm. And so highly negative things like screaming and yelling and criticism. Criticism is an incredibly toxic thing Mm -hmm. in almost all family relationships, marriages, um, parent relationships. So things like belittling, those things are very negative for families in general. But then the positive pieces of it is warmth, expressing love for one another, acts of love or acts of kind of demonstrative acts of love. So giving hugs, or if you're not necessarily affectionate, telling each other how you appreciate each other, those types of things. Okay. And so when I was preparing for this episode, I was reading a lot about how conflict is not very good for children's development, (laughs) but I am trying to sort of get my arms around what kind of conflict is really bad conflict. And I'm just thinking about, you know, my my husband's not listening to me again and I'm kind of irritated with him. Does Does that count as conflict or does it have to be like yelling and screaming? Oh, gosh, I think that this is such an important question. I think that many parents have this idea that kids should never see them fighting, Mm -hmm. right? And so what research actually shows is that this isn't the case 100% of the time. So kids are incredibly tuned into the emotional environment of their home, particularly their parents' relationship, because they derive a lot of security from that relationship. So kids have a lot invested in that relationship going well because that's where they get their security and their stability from. So even when parents attempt to hide their disagreements, kids almost always know that they're happening. (laughs) I'm Um, just thinking back to a memory from childhood. We, uh, We used to have a long driveway at our house and my dad would reverse out of it every morning past the kitchen window and my mom would wave to him. And I do remember on at least one occasion, even though they would always hide conflicts from us, I have no memory of them of them having a conflict ever in front of us or even you know within auditory range. I have memories of my mother drawing the blind in the kitchen window in the morning. Right? Oh, so, so there's yeah. hostility, right? Yes, it yeah. was there. Yeah. Even though yeah, I didn't hear it. What's really interesting, too, is that even pre-verbal infants display behavioral changes when there is tension between parents hmm. after a conflict. What kind of changes? like more subdued affect, or they might cry more depending on that child's coping strategy. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole set of, you of course are familiar with attachment theory, and I'm guessing a lot mm-hmm. of your listeners are, um, but there's a whole kind of sister theory called emotional security theory that really views the couple relationship as a kind of a separate attachment figure, if we're talking about it. And I, we This is just kind of coming up now. But emotional security theory is really helpful in thinking about why kids intervene in parents' conflicts. And so attachment theory is based on the way we measure it is by observing behaviors, right? So we measure a child's like security of attachment by putting them in a stressful situation and watching what they do. And there are similar behaviors that children engage in their parents are arguing or disagreeing that signal kind of their feelings of security around that couple relationship. So kids who are feeling less secure or are kind of nervous when fighting starts to happen will do things like problem solve the conflict for the parents or create a big distraction to distract the parents from the conflict. And so we see some of those behaviors in infants and they get more sophisticated as kids get older. 
Hmm. And how does, how severe does that conflict have to be before children start doing that kind of thing? Like, is my irritation Ah. enough or? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it totally depends on the tactics that you're using rather than the disagreement itself. Okay. So we, in the literature, they talk a lot about negative conflict tactics, like belittling and criticism and Mm -hmm. yelling, and then positive conflict tactics, like problem solving, validating, showing empathy, those types of things. And so if you're able to manage your irritation with your partner, I, I actually have an example. <laughs> oh, please. That happened <laughs> I have some too. But... Time for this. Right. <laughs> so recently my husband stopped at the grocery store on the way home from work and, but he forgot an ingredient that I really needed for a recipe for a thing that was happening the next day. And there was no replacement. There wasn't something I could substitute. Right. And so when he got home and he didn't have it, I was justifiably frustrated, mm-hmm. even though this is a common mistake that everybody makes at sometimes. But I was frustrated. And in that moment, I expressed the frustration to him. <laughs> and he was able to validate my feelings while offering to run back to the store after the kids were in bed. So he offered a solution. And in that moment, I was able to take a deep breath and you know, validate that, yes, we've all forgotten things um, and thank him for going to get it. And then I was able to let it go. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not always able to let it go. And, <laughs> and if I know going in that I'm not going to be able to let it go, I will say, let's talk about it later. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about it later. Because I know that at that point in time, my conflict tactics might not be quite so positive. <laughs> but if I know I'm going to be able to handle it well, I absolutely want to offer that as a learning opportunity for my kids so that they mm-hmm. can see see me expressing my, you know, my feelings and having those feelings be validated by my partner. I think that that's really important. And then see us work together to come up with solutions Mm -hmm. and then to see me being gracious and forgiving. I think that those are all wonderful opportunities to model for kids. It sounds lovely. (laughs) Yes, right. But it can't go go that way every time, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that If you can be present enough to know when it's not going to go well, making an effort to say, hmm, you know, I I think we need to talk about this later. You know, let's schedule a date to to talk about it. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to model to your kids as well. Being able to kind of regulate yourself, not have to engage in the conflict in the moment and take time to cool off. Yeah. I, I was I was just thinking about an example, and I, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but it just popped into my mind. My husband and I had a, a conflict. This was a few months ago now. About it was so stupid. It was about a package that he needed to mail to somebody, and I was trying to make life easier for him by researching, you know, what are the flat rate shipping options, and was asking him questions about it, and he was not answering them in the way that I needed, and I just found it so irritating. And then he got irritated at me for answering asking questions that he thought were irrelevant. And, and <laughs> right. when, once you get into that cycle, how do you get out of it again? That's that's the part I struggle with. Yes. Yeah, so this is where mindfulness practice is super helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, a regular mindfulness practice is, you know, it's proven to change the structure of your brain and to we get into these neur- like they call them neuronal groups. Right. So we have these grooves, these patterns that we have kind of worn in our brain Mm. where we start responding in very stereotypical ways, Mm -hmm. very ways that are just very much guided by how we've responded in the past, you know? And so mindfulness as an active practice helps you break some of those those grooves helps you kind of, you know, if we picture a person like pacing in a study, you know, and there's a comic, you know, where someone's pacing in a study and they've worn uh, like a circle 
track around their desk <laughs> in this study, right? <laughs> and so what mindfulness does is help you vary your path a little bit so that you don't get sucked down into those grooves mm-hmm. as much. Okay. And so you just sort of threw out a, a big topic there as a mindfulness <laughs> practice. Uh, could you perhaps give us a little definition on what you mean by that? Yeah. So I, wow, I wasn't expecting to talk about this, but yes. <laughs> a short I mean, definition would suffice. <laughs> right. So a mindfulness practices um, any point in time when you're engaging and being fully present in the kind of the experience that you're having moment to moment. Mm. Many times when we talk about mindfulness, we're talking about meditation. I think that meditation can be a little bit of a scary word to people who are like, oh no, I could never sit still and not think about something. You know, I, I just am not good at that. But really what mindfulness is, is the practice of letting go of that judgment Mm. and saying like, yes, you're right. You can never not think of things. And so these thoughts are going to come and I'm going to practice redirecting my attention. And at the core of it, it's, you know, it's a practice in self-regulation. So, and selective attention. And so this is what I'm going to give my focus to. I'm going to focus on my breathing rather than these thoughts that are running through my head. Mm -hmm. Does that yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. I, I have tried it a little bit. I have trouble sleeping sometimes and, and often try and imagine when I'm trying not to think of anything, I'll, and a thought comes into my mind, I imagine it as a, a balloon and I'm holding mm-hmm. the string and I let the string go. And that, yeah. that helps me oh, in that good instance. Imagery. <laughs> I don't know where I came up with that, but uh, it's something I think that is easier for me when I'm calm and, mm-hmm. and much more difficult in that moment. And I guess maybe maybe a tool I've read that could be somewhat useful is the I think some people have a, a nice name of it, like the sanity pause or something like that, yeah. <laughs> where yeah. you just it, try to not react for a second and just think, stop, <laughs> is, yes. is this worth it? Is this what I want to be focused on right now? Or can we put this conversation off? Or does my husband need to go to the post office? <laughs> and we, right. we do have to sort of figure this out, but can we just take it down a notch? Mm-hmm. And so that sanity pause I think is a, yeah. a tool that I have heard of and have tried to put to use. <laughs> but yeah. I, I'm not always as successful as I might like. <laughs> well, I, and I think that we can't always be successful. And so I think that there are times when we do have a big conflict or a blow up that happens in front of our children. And there's research on that too, that there is a way to kind of mitigate the negative effects of mm. that okay. um, or kind of lessen the negative effects. And that really comes from a place of acknowledging and explaining and possibly even apologizing to the children that mm-hmm. this happened. So mm-hmm. they being able to say, wow, I, I bet that was a little scary. No one likes to see their parents get angry with each other. I want to make sure that you know, no matter how mad I get, I always love your daddy or your mommy, whichever. And I always love you. And then be able to kind of offer some reassurement that we all have disagreements sometimes. It's part of life. But that next time we'll try to talk in a more loving way when we disagree. Mm. Okay. Oh, and then offer the opportunity to ask questions. Okay. Um, and then this can happen during like big fights, you know, and where maybe things got way out of hand. <laughs> Both of you were very dysregulated, yeah. you know, and the kind of the fights where you're, you're very much in fight or flight mode, you know, mm-hmm. and you're maybe seeing red a little bit, those, those types of fights you, okay. for a, a smaller one 
oftentimes kids don't even need to see your resolution. They are, again, they're so tuned into your relationship that mm-hmm. they know when you've resolved things. They, cause they know from the casual touches or the glances or the tone of voice, they okay. know that things are resolved and they don't always need to know exactly how it was resolved. Okay. That's comforting. We, we don't have too many of those blowouts over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I'm wondering. But some if, families do. You yeah. Know, yeah. They do. do and, yeah, and and so. that's just the personality of the the individuals and the relationship and yeah so yeah. It, it's good to know that that is repairable from the child's it perspective is. and is there a difference when the fight is about the child mm-hmm. or about how the child is raised if a child hears a fight about that what what's going on in their mind and how does it affect them yeah so kids especially girls have a tendency to blame themselves for their parents conflict so if a conflict is about the child, kind of, and even no matter how small it is, even if it's one where you guys are just disagreeing on whether or not a kid can go to a sleepover or if they're ready to swim without water rings, you know, something small, mm-hmm. it still is a place where you, if you can, try to say, hmm, I, you know, I just don't think that we've ever decided on this. So dad and I or mom and I need to sit down and talk about it and we'll let you know what we decide. Or if it's a situation where you have older kids and you're ready to involve them in that specific decision, then you can sit down together and do a family problem solving session. But if the conflict is around something Oh, like one of my parenting groups recently, a parent was talking about how her partner had taken her son to do something special that they had previously talked about that the mother was going to do with the son. And so this was a, like, the mother was very hurt by this. And so that's a situation where you would have those conversations and kind of get that resolution privately and not in front of the child, because then the the child very easily could take the blame on themselves. Okay. When they're blameless. But sometimes I can imagine that, like, if the husband came home and said, oh, we just went and did this special thing and the mother... I could imagine would be, yes. <laughs> it would, would have a reaction in that moment. Yes. <laughs> so if that kind of thing does occur in front of the child, is, is that, and, and you can't say, for some reason, you, you cannot bring it upon yourself to say, let's discuss this later when we're calm. <laughs> yes. what, what happens there and, and how do you bring that to resolution? Yeah. So, I mean, if, and sometimes we can't, you know, we're not perfect. We can't always you know, take it into the other room or wait until the kids are in bed, right? We can't sometimes. And so, and that, again, that's another time where we're honest with, with our kids about the, our emotions. We say that, you know, I, I was really upset and I don't think I handled it very well. I'm, you know, and I want you to know that this was not your fault. This was something that daddy and I should have talked about before and we didn't. And this wasn't daddy's fault. It wasn't my fault. It just happened, you know, and it certainly wasn't your fault. And we all love each other, no matter how mad we were. Mm -hmm. That reassurance of the love is always there, regardless of whether the voices are angry is an important thing for for kids. Mm-hmm. And as you're saying that, I'm imagining if I'm the parent explaining that to the child, that that expression of love probably helps to calm me down a bit as well and remind mm-hmm. me of the importance of those things. <laughs> yeah. And, and to feel secure in that, like, just because my dad did this special thing with me, my mom doesn't hate me or hate mm-hmm. my dad. Yeah. Yeah. Because the kids do, they think in extremes, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes when they are experiencing an emotion, most of the time they're experiencing it the strongest they've ever experienced it before. Hmm. Because their lives are so short. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to keep in mind. So sometimes when they're scared or sad and they feel it so intensely and we as adults are like, wow, that's very intense experience of that emotion right now. We have to remember that it probably is the 
biggest emotion like version of that emotion mm-hmm. they've ever felt yeah you know? they can't look or back and say well time. this isn't as bad as <laughs> whatever because right, they, they don't have that experience <laughs> right. to look back on yeah yeah huh. exactly okay so I want to go back to something that you said a little while ago about emotional security training. And I had been thinking about how the marital relationship affects parenting. <laughs> and right. in a way, as you were explaining that, it almost made me think as though the marital relationship is kind of how we train our children to think about relationships and how to interact <laughs> with, with other people that you're close to. And, and of course, the flip side of that is how does parenting affect the marital relationship? Because I think those impacts yeah. can be pretty profound. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Oh gosh. So you touched a little bit on kind of how we teach kids about relationships and kind of their place in the world. And gosh, we could spend a whole episode talking <laughs> on about internal working models, uh-huh. which is a little bit of what that is. But yes, parts of the children's internal working models of relationships are built within the home that they are growing up in. So this is a big question. I feel like we could also spend a lot of time talking about it. I obviously love talking about these things. But so the major theories on kind of the relationship between a couple relationship and parenting is that um, this relationship is bi-directional, meaning that the couple relationship influences parenting and parenting influences the couple relationship. So we're here we're talking about two family systems that are very interrelated. For example, one of the classic statistics is that marital satisfaction reaches an all-time low in the first year or two after mm-hmm. a baby is born. I wonder right? why. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sleep deprivation, you know, <laughs> major identity shifts for mm-hmm. both parents, postpartum depression for both parents sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like it's oh, it's a rough time in life. Right. And so then there's there's a few different theories on how this all works. And so the most common is that when parenting is hard, that stress can spill over into the marriage or when things are hard in the marriage, that stress or negativity can spill over into how we interact with our children. On the other hand, there is what is called a compensatory model. I mean, this happens in some families. Um, So some families compensate for poor marital functioning by throwing themselves into parenting. And that can actually act as a buffer for kids, but at some points it can also result in parent-child relationships that are a bit problematic Hmm. in that they're kind of too close or become, the word we use is enmeshed. So that's the kind of the Mm -hmm. word for being too close. How do you know when a relationship is too close? This is the only, it feels icky. (laughs) I know it's such a technical term, but if you've ever been in a relationship that's too close or too kind of dependent, Mm -hmm. you will know, especially if you were the child. Okay. So if you're the child, you might know if if you're the parent and you're initiating that too close relationship, you might not know, right? You might not know. And so, but for a parent, if you are feeling where you're at a place where with your child where their responses to you are challenging kind of your your core sense of well-being. So if they're rejecting towards you, this is kind of destroying you. Or if you're kind of so invested that the only thing you think about or care about is your child, I think it can be easy to slip into those places. But oftentimes those can be warning signs that there's other things going on that a parent is kind of escaping into their parent-child relationship. Mm. So. I don't know. I got a little off topic there. (laughs) And then I guess another way that parents can handle like parenting stress is using their couple relationship as a source of support. And this is one of the healthiest ways that these two systems can interact. So when things get. And how do you do that? Oftentimes it takes counseling, Mm. (laughs) but just because it's not always our 
I mean, so some, some parents and, and couples do this naturally. And so there's Gottman, John Gottman's research on this. Um, his book is really great for parents bringing baby home. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's called, or bringing home baby. I think it's bringing baby home. It's a really great book on this topic. And so there are some parents that do this well, do this naturally. They experience the stressors of being parents, of kind of shifting into the, these new identities, and they fall into each other kind of as a couple and bolster each other up. And they become stronger as they navigate these stressors. And then other parents don't navigate it so well. And so you can you can learn to engage in some of these more positive characteristics. And mm-hmm. I think that we could talk for two sessions probably on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the book, Bringing Baby Home, is a really easy to read, research-based book for parents who are looking to improve their relationship after they've brought a child into the home. Okay, great. We'll make sure to put that in the references along with all the other yeah. things that you're mentioning as well. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. And so is it right then to say that the parents are kind of the role model that children will use to think about what it means to be in a relationship? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, it, I don't know that it's always, ne- it's necessarily so conscious. I think that there will be kind of unconscious expectations of how relationships work. Mm-hmm. And then kids, as they grow up, become conscious of things they are going to choose not to do. And so if they have an example of a couple relationship that's really positive, that they really like, but there's a few things that they would do differently, and they might be very conscious of a few things, but then also have unconscious expectations. Mm-hmm. So like an example, I can use my partner as an example. Uh, my husband comes from a family where he w- was never never saw or even was aware of conflicts happening Mm -hmm. in his house other than when his parents were pretty distant with each other. And so there, and he knows now as an adult that there were some big conflicts and the one or two times that he witnessed conflicts, he was very involved in stopping them. And so now as a adult who's in a relationship with a trained marriage therapist. (laughs) There's no escape. (laughs) There is no escape, right? But we totally get into this place of where I'm very comfortable with conflicts. My parents were very open with their emotions, both positive and negative. If something wasn't going right, they let us, you know, let us know or they let each other know for the most part, even if I didn't see it. You know, I always knew that things were kind of on the level with them. Mm -hmm. And that was my expectation going into marriage. And it's been a challenge at times. When I was pregnant with my first daughter, we kind of proactively went to couples therapy because I, knowing what I knew, knew that things were going to get more stressful and I didn't want to have to like be kind of chasing someone all over the house trying to have a fight. (laughs) (laughs) You want them to come to you and have the fight. (laughs) Right. I wanted, I wanted us to be able to sit down and not be afraid of a disagreement, you know, to know that this disagreement doesn't have to mean we're upset with each other. It doesn't have to mean that we don't love each other, that this disagreement is going to bring us closer once we resolve it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. And enough talk about fighting for a little bit. (laughs) Because one thing I want to to dig into a little bit is your research that you did for your PhD, because I found it absolutely fascinating. You looked at the relationship between marital functioning and family emotional expressiveness and how that connected to early literacy skills. And I think yours was the first to look specifically at that topic. Is that right? 
Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting. So it, in my PhD program, I had an opportunity to start working with a early literacy researcher, and it wasn't necessarily an outcome that I was expecting to be interested in, but I was. And as I dug into this, the research, I realized that there was hardly any information on how like family process factors like marital functioning or parent depression influence children's early literacy skills and and no research on kind of how that influence happens. And so I had this great opportunity to be able to pick the measures that I wanted to put into this data set. So they were at the place where they were just starting data collection with hundreds of preschool age children. And so I put in these kind of these marriage and family functioning variables with the idea of hoping to kind of get a fuller picture of of how the family influences children's early literacy development. Does that mm-hmm. Yep. And make so sense? what did you okay. find? Yeah, so it turns out that marital functioning indirectly influences children's early literacy skills through its effect on the family emotional environment and the home learning environment. And so in general, parents who report better marital relationships have families that tend to display more positive and fewer negative emotions, which is related to an increase in home learning activities for positive, or I guess an increase in home learning activities. And home learning activities are things like shared book reading, playing number games, singing songs like This Old Man, you know, that has numbers in it, teaching the names of letters and the sounds of letters, those types of things. Mm -hmm. And so when parents are happier in their marriages and their marriages are going well, they tend to engage in more positive emotions and fewer negative emotions. And that kind of emotional environment is related to home learning activities. And those home learning activities are predictive of better early literacy skills for children in this age range, so three to five. And were you surprised by that? Or not? Uh, as a marriage and family therapist, I was not. My child development professors, who I was working with at the time, definitely were. So my mm-hmm. advisors were, were definitely surprised by those results. Mm-hmm. But I, from a like a theoretical perspective, it made complete sense to me. Okay. And was it a really strong effect? No. So it's a small but significant effect. And mm-hmm. that's completely what I would expect in something that's so distally related. So when we think about effect sizes, we would always assume that things are that are more closely related to the outcome we're measuring to be have a stronger effect. So like age, like development mm-hmm. always has a stronger effect on things like early literacy skills. Yeah, um, and teaching because, the sounds of letters and that kind of thing as well. Right. Like direct. It, direct <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Versus something, you know, so if we were to have a visual of my model, there are three steps between marital satisfaction Mm -hmm. and the child outcome. And so at each step further, you know, as you get further out, the effect necessarily has to be a little bit smaller, but still significant. Okay. And so the goal for the study wasn't necessarily to explain all of children's early literacy skills, but to explain the pieces of it that the family accounted for. Okay. Does that Yep. Yeah. And when you say significant, you mean statistically significant. Yeah, statistically significant. Right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And so that that's kind of a measure of is is something really having an effect on something or not? If you say it's statistically significant, you mean that even though the effect size is small, that yes, it is having an effect on literacy. Right. Yes. Okay. And so how does it compare with other factors like socioeconomic status that I think is sort of bandied around as being one of the very important indirect factors that affect literacy? 
I, you know, it's hard to compare. Statistically, you can't compare okay. effect sizes in that way. It's not necessarily a meaningful um, comparison. So in my specific studies, we did look at how socioeconomic status kind of fit in these models. And the, so the statistics that we're using, we're using a modeling program where you put in lo- different lines of code to see which which ones are predicting the outcome. And so when the, the line containing socioeconomic status was in the model, it didn't change. Okay the outcome at all. So in my specific study, um, including socioeconomic status as a factor, didn't change the outcome of the effect of the marital relationship and Mm. family expressiveness. So I don't know if that helps with that question a little bit more, um, because across studies, you you can't really pull out effect sizes from, yeah, anyway, I I don't want to get too technical. Eyes are going to glaze over. (laughs) So one thing that I do want to talk a little bit more about, because I know that you really love the the methodology of this stuff. And, and <laughs> often on the show, we talk about the results of a study. And it's not so often that we get somebody who's willing to kind of dig into the <laughs> how, how the thing worked. Yeah. And, and when you read these studies, sometimes you look at them cross-eyed at, at how they ask the questions or what kind of questions they ask. And so I know that you use some standardized instruments in your study when you're asking families questions about practices that occur in the family. And for example, Mm -hmm. you talked about how often arguments take place in front of the child and that parents had to answer on a scale of never to very often. And, you know, we just talked about how there's a whole lot more that goes into arguments than just never to very often. And and another, a couple of the other measures were how often parents praise the children, which I never do. We we talked a lot about praise on the show (laughs) and we did a whole episode on that. And also, you know, how frequently parents teach their children letter sounds and, my answer would have been whenever she asks. And mm-hmm. so <laughs> I, I understand that it's important to use these st- statistically normed measures as a kind of insurance that you're measuring what you think you're measuring. But how do you account for, is it just me being a weird parent and <laughs> I would skew your results? Or are there enough parents who do things that aren't like the things described in these measures that it really throws it off? Yeah, you know, so when I designed this study, I was not a parent yet. Um, <laughs> and as I went back and looked at it after having children, I'm like, no, I don't want to do these things. You know, and I started to understand those obnoxious parents who do these studies and then leave questions blank and a little bit more because they definitely do. They're like, I don't like that question. I'm not going to answer it. You know, and so we can account for those things statistically. So, but when it comes to like, to accounting for these kinds of relationships or these kind of families that on like that don't work in the same way that these normed measures do mm-hmm. the really honest answer is that you can't and i know this is a topic that you probably are okay with me talking about but the fact is that most studies are designed to study the average parent in the majority culture so mm-hmm. if we're being perfectly honest we're often talking about white heterosexual middle-class families. Oh yeah. We talk Um, about that all the time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so to be even more honest, we're often, we're talking about just moms. Mm -hmm. So many studies, even if they're done on diverse populations, the measures themselves were designed for the majority or dominant culture and they're, they're biased in that way. So that, I mean, it's, it's simply a limitation of some of the ways that we have to do this research. Mm -hmm. And by have to, I mean, we're getting into the, one of the reasons why academia no longer felt like a good fit for me mm-hmm. because the, the 
it's a publish or perish kind of thing. You To be a successful professor, to keep your job, you need to be publishing. And in order to publish, you need to have publishable research. And journals don't want to publish your work if you're using a measure, you know, or just asking kind of random questions. They mm-hmm. want the standardized measure that's been used in other papers. And so you are, li- you're limited sometimes in the questions you can ask or the data you can collect simply by the fact that you want to keep your job. Mm-hmm. So I don't, yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard to ask all the questions you want to, and maybe you can, once you've gotten to be a full professor and then you you don't have to worry about, you know, you've got tenure and you don't have to worry about committees critiquing your work and you can kind of do what you want. the questions that you knew you should have been asking all along. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I didn't want to wait that long. So. Yeah. Wow. That's, I think that's a really profound insight for our listeners. You know, we, we talk about these studies all the time and when I can, I call out the methodological limitations. Like, you know, we know that this is valid for middle-class white people and I'm sorry if that doesn't describe your family, but we don't have research on your family right now. Or even that the questions that they ask as a measure of whatever it is they're trying to measure might not measure things in the way that you would answer them if you were taking the, the instrument yourself. So, so listeners just tuck that away in the back of your mind. And (laughs) when we go into these studies, I do do the best that I can to kind of call those things out that seem especially pertinent, but just always be aware that there are these things in, in scientific studies that impact the way the results come out. And just because you see a, you know, 50% improvement in variable X, it, it doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. Yeah. Caveats are a big part of active yeah, research. Yeah. There's, there's usually a nice paragraph at the end that lists them all, doesn't yes. it? And <laughs> yep. sometimes it does list them all and sometimes it misses one or two. And yes. <laughs> it rarely Very makes much. the uh, the clickbait headline, does it? No. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, so you, you mentioned something about, you just briefly mentioned that even when you do get a, a diverse audience, you're almost always looking at the mothers. And I think there's a unique relationship between fathers and early literacy skills. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I was very adamant when I was designing my study that I wanted to include fathers. And I went out and got extra funding to be able to do that because they are so underrepresented in our research and lots of... in the child development field or in the clinical, you know, in clinical practice, we are designing interventions that are based almost entirely on the mother's perspective and experience. And so I, I felt very strongly that we needed to have dads. Oh, um, I thought the mother's experience studies. was the only one that counted. <laughs> right. <laughs> <No>. oh. <laughs> yeah. So in one of my studies, I found that father's own perceptions of their marital relationship uniquely contributed to the emotional environment of the family and which also uniquely contributed to parent-child interactions within the context of the home learning environment and kind of above and beyond that of mothers. And so this finding suggests that while the marital relationship is important for the family emotional environment for both mothers and fathers, the process of that is unique for fathers. And then kind of harping on this point again, this indicates that theory and interventions based on a body of research that's almost entirely driven by data for mothers Mm. may not actually be relevant for fathers because things just seem to work differently for dads. And then in one of my other studies where I looked at parent depression, and I guess we can maybe, I don't know if we're going to get a chance to talk to this about this similar, but, or later, but 
it, similarly, father's depression worked differently in the family and its effect on children was actually through mother's home learning environment. So the way that it turned out was that when fathers are more depressed, they engage in fewer home learning um, activities. But when they're depressed, moms also engage in fewer home learning mm. activities. And so the kind of the theory on that is that fathers are depressed. The literature suggests that they have kind of a more, a greater ability to withdraw from parenting mm -hmm. than mothers do just simply from social pressure. You know, the social kind of socialized way that we think about mothers and fathers in the family. Mm -hmm. And that puts more burden on mom. And so mom kind of has to kind of prune away the non-essential parenting things. And mm -hmm. so because she's just more stressed, has more on her plate. And yeah. so she's not able to do as many of the kind of the extras. Yeah. She gets the food on the table, but doesn't necessarily have time to read stories at night. That kind right. Of thing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then there's also, there's some literature to suggest that father's parenting is more susceptible to influence from other family systems and that fathers are more likely to allow affects from one family context to spill over into other contexts. And that. What do you mean by that? What other family contexts? So like marital conflict, for example. Okay. Moms tend in the literature when we compare mothers and fathers in the same family, moms tend to be better at kind of shielding kids their parenting from and, and stopping that spillover. Putting um, on the sweet smile and <laughs> yes, <laughs> sucking yeah, it up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Whereas fathers are less able to do that. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. And is, is the literature on how depression impacts a child's development conclusive or do different people have different ideas of how, how the impacts work? I think the so there's this is a very much a growing area of research and while we know a lot about kind of the outcomes we still have a lot to learn about the mechanisms or how it happens mm -hmm. that depression influences children's development there's a big body of literature that says that parent depression is related to negative outcomes for kids and it's related to negative outcomes I guess it affects all nearly all parts of the family system mm -hmm. a couple the family as a whole parenting and there actually is a growing body of fathers, um, research into fathers' mental health and depression. And the research is showing that fathers' depression is as important, if not more important, than mothers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just a, a quick example. So mothers who are depressed tend to speak less to their children and also tend to display flat affect. Mm. And your listeners might enjoy watching. Um, so there's classic experiment called the still face procedure yep. that mimics the kind of the flat effect and it shows very clearly the uh, kind of the emotional response that a, a baby has um, in seeing flat affect in their parent it freaks them out right yeah it totally freaks them out <laughs> they become completely dysregulated uh -huh. um, and you can see them engaging in self-regulation activities like looking away averting their gaze sucking or crying and it's very distressing to them mm. and when you say and flat so, affect you basically mean like stone face not not making any expression right no expression yeah. yes and so and flat affect is a part of is one of the symptoms that is commonly displayed in depression mm. so yeah yeah but oh gosh I feel like we just painted a really negative picture yeah well <laughs> so, luckily like, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I was yeah. prepared for this <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we you and I were emailing about this before the show and and you mentioned the deficit model of parenting and so I looked around a bit on that and 
it kind of seems like it's the idea that the ideal family, quote unquote, is one mother and one father and one or maybe more children, probably just one in my case. And when we're talking about ideal families in the dominant culture, they're probably white. <laughs> I right. suppose it's possible that they're not. And and my listeners know I say that facetiously. And they're all of sound mental health and they all get on pretty well. And kind of any departure from that ideal model is pictured in some way as being harmful to the child. Is is that about right? And what do you think of that model? Yeah. So the the phrase deficit model is used in a lot of different contexts in child development, but often when how kind of I was using it is the idea that um, researchers often focus on risk factors or what a family or couple or child is lacking Mm -hmm. rather than approaching things from a strength-based perspective. Mm -hmm. So we often, like when we see low-income children or children from minority groups, we often spend our time talking about what they are missing or what their parents aren't doing Mm -hmm. or what we need to tell them to do more of rather than looking for what they are doing. What are the unique things or strengths that these families give to their children that maybe our measures, which were developed, again, for white, privileged (laughs) individuals, what are our measures missing? Mm -hmm. Um, So one of my first papers that I, I, I guess the first paper I ever published looked at family involvement in Head Start families. And we found that contrary to the common narrative around these families, that they actually are quite involved. They're involved um, in various ways, both at home, at school, and in their community. It's just that this involvement looks a little bit different than it does for families who are not facing the same stressors that these families are. Mm-hmm. And they had unique barriers to involvement that other families don't have. Yeah. So, yeah, coming from this place of what is this person missing, it, limits us, you know, versus what are some of the unique strengths that these families have. So yeah. I don't, yeah. I've been reading a lot about that lately. I'm actually developing a course to help parents support their children who are learning in a school-based environment because I've done a lot of research on homeschooling. And one of the things I found in, in looking at schools is that the teachers see middle-class white parents' interactions with the school as kind of the ideal model of Mm -hmm. school interactions. And so uh, any minority family who isn't volunteering in class on a weekly basis and, you know, showing up to parent-teacher things in the middle of the day when they have to be at work and can't get out is sort of seen as a, well, they're unresponsive and they don't care about their child's education when actually they do very much care about their child's education and they do things to support that education that aren't captured in the traditional exactly. ways of studying that engagement. Yes. <laughs> yes. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, I, I, again, it's sort of a, a, a caveat emptor, isn't it? It's, yes, these studies do tell us something useful, particularly if you're a middle-class white person, but that there can be a whole variety of other impacts on a family that aren't captured by the studies that we look at. Right. Yes. And even for, you know, so to be completely honest, I went through a series, a series of depressions after both of my kids. Mm -hmm. I had two traumatic births. I had a very significant trauma during my pregnancy with my second and I had PTSD symptoms and I knew all of this research, you know, I knew what, what my depression had the potential to do to my kids. And I think it's really easy for parents to sink into this place of guilt and self-blame when they hear research like this. Mm-hmm. And what I really want with in my work with parents, I really, I really want to encourage parents to take this research and simply view it as new information that they can use to make parenting and relationship decisions without judgment or guilt. So I really want to help parents move from a place of 
great, I have postpartum depression and a crappy relationship, but now I'm going to ruin my child uh-huh. to right to a place of, okay, so postpartum depression is real for me right now. What do I need to do to address this? And while I do, how can I keep this from influencing my parenting? Mm-hmm. You know, so what supports do I need to put into place to make sure I, I have good resources, that I have the rest I need, that I have the help I need? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, wow, I'm feeling super disconnected from my partner. I miss us. And I know that it's better for the kids when our relationship is going well. What can we do to get that connection back on track for all of us, for our whole family? You know, so kind of moving from this place of guilt and judgment mm-hmm. and being able to make informed decisions that work best for their unique families um, without getting stuck in guilt. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps also focusing on what are the unique strengths that our family has as yes. well? And how do yeah. they contribute to raising our children? Yes. Yeah. 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 We're, we're not, we're not just about deficits and arguing and, (laughs) (laughs) and yelling. Yeah. We're, we're definitely trying to empower parents to, to take this information and use it to, to guide their decisions in a way that results in a, in a more positive environment for their child. But yeah, without that judgment and without the, if I don't do this, I'm going to screw up my child. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, I don't know, the deterministic piece of this too. So this research can make it feel like, so if I have depression, like it's, this is the end result for my kid. And Mm -hmm. it's not like that. These are averages across large studies, large numbers of people. And your specific case is unique to you. And Mm -hmm. the things that that are happening for you don't necessarily have to mean a certain outcome for your child. Yeah. And that just because on average 49% of kids end up having this reaction with a depressed parent does not mean that your child is going to. <laughs> right. Yeah, have that exactly. Reaction. Yeah. 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 Okay. Super. Well, thank you so much for helping us to understand a bit more about how our families work and how that impacts our children. Yeah, no, I was so glad to, you know, I love your podcast and I'm so happy to be on it. (laughs) Well, thank you. So if you're interested in learning more about Laura's work, you can find her on a website at Laura Froyen, and that's Laura as you would expect. And Froyen is F-R-O-Y-E-N.com. And as a reminder, all the references that I've read in preparation for the show, as well as everything that Laura has mentioned during the show that we were not (laughs) formally prepared (laughs) for, she's going to send to me. And they will also be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash parenting. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.